0: If there's one thing I hate, it's mayonnaise mixed with fruity pebbles. But if there are two things I hate, it's mayonnaise mixed with fruity pebbles and journalists who speak of their careers in athletic terms. I'm talking about writers signing contracts, negotiating, ESPN on-air folks being referred to as, quote, the talent. Words like the craft and putting in the work. It's all just self-indulgent bullshit, and I abhor it. That being said, this podcast is about (sighs) my rookie year. Yeah, I know. Journalists don't have rookie years. You start a career and that's that. But when I think back to 1994, to graduating from the University of Delaware on a late May afternoon, and a week later, joining the Nashville Tennessean as a writer in the newspaper's living department, aka Features, I can't help but compare myself to guys like Tony Mandritz and Johnny Manziel, to Jamarcus Russell and Pearl Washington. Like them, I was a rookie. Like them, I was a disaster who easily could have flamed out into the abyss. Welcome to episode 119 of Two Writers Singing Yang, a special look back at all the potholes I fell into as a young reporter and the lessons that can be learned. Welcome to my rookie year. It's May, 1994. I'm a senior at the University of Delaware, wrapping up my year as editor of the student newspaper, The Review. I'm not a good editor, but I think I'm a great editor. I'm not a good reporter, but I think I'm a great reporter. As goes the tradition, I write a farewell column in the review's last issue of the spring semester, and the sheer arrogance tells you everything you need to know about who I was at age 22. Here, take a listen, and try not to vomit. Dayline, Newark, Delaware. As the Delaware skyline darkens, and the winds of a soon-to-be frigid night move in, A solitary figure stands by the garage door, checking to make sure his ski mask is nice and tight. He drapes his hands in a thick pair of black gloves, then moves down to stretch his legs, covered by thermal dark blue sweatpants. Before the outgoing editor-in-chief of The Review takes off for an 86-or-so-year run, he wants to be certain every distinguishable element of his body is covered. He hides in his inner self, protected by the false image of a man who knows only how to bash and demolish. The most hated man at Delaware. The asshole Jeff Perlman, the anti Greek, anti athlete, anti Roselle, anti gay, anti black, anti woman, anti everything dick in the wall. UD's bad boy. Jeff Perlman snickers to himself while stretching for the trek. He knows the false identity that's been created is more than slightly his own doing. Yes, Jeff Perlman does smile and laugh and tell jokes and hug. Just never in public Always sit with your back to the wall Malcolm X once wrote The editor likes Malcolm X He doesn't like the image though I will now pause for a six second break Feel free to use the time to either throw up or ridicule me Either reaction is fair Anyhow I was a dick The type of dick I now can't tolerate for more than a second or two The young Thinks he knows everything Doesn't want advice Plans on being And this was really my plan the greatest sports writer who has ever walked the earth type of dick. But I was also a dick with a job. A few weeks earlier, the Nashville Tennessean, a major metropolitan daily with a Sunday circulation around 300,000, flew me down to interview for a writing position. This wasn't as random as it might sound, the previous summer I'd interned in the papers feature section and walked away with about 50 clips and their reputation as a kid who loved to write. On a side note, it was the best summer of my life. There were four interns and we all lived inside the dorms at Tennessee State University. My roommate was a rapper from Oakland named Sexy Sweat who would come home at 2 a.m. and blast the music of someone named Ant Banks. Another one of the guys was Rick Jervis, now a terrific USA Today writer and a kid who got me wasted at a place called Asa Clubs then kindly carried me to the car when I passed out on the dance floor. Hey, that Zemo was potent stuff. Anyhow, it was fantastic. And when the new features editor, a woman named Catherine Mayu, came on board after serving as the lifestyle editor at the Reno Gazette Journal, her predecessor told her that the Jewish kid from New York and the University of Delaware might be what she's looking for. Here, this is Catherine.
1: Generally speaking, when you graduate from college, you have to work your way up to a paper the size of the Tennessean. That being said... The lifeblood of a features department has to be spontaneity, unusual, you know, controversial even. It's supposed to spark opinions, ideas, you know, that kind of thing. Well, this features department in Tennessee, and God, I hope nobody's listening to this who was there at the time, was just this dry, dusty, depressing place where they had parked a lot of people they didn't quite know what to do with. And Joanne had told me about this crazy kid (laughs) from the University of Delaware. And I thought, you know, this is gonna be outside the box and I I might get dinged for it, but I need a quick infusion of crazy. And and you were my quick
0: infusion of crazy. I graduated from Delaware on May 28th, 1994, and was pretty much immediately on my way to Tennessee, driving down on my brown Chevy, blessed with a $26,000 salary and an apartment by the Cumberland River that featured a breathtaking view of Sludge. Upon arrival, I was formally introduced as the Nashville Tennesseans' new food and fashion writer. It was inarguably to that date the strangest twist of my life. Catherine didn't actually view me as a legitimate food and fashion writer, or even someone who could one day develop into a legitimate food and fashion writer. Two years earlier, while interning at the Champagne Urbana News Gazette, I called my mom in a panic, asking how one opens a cantaloupe. I didn't cook, like, at all. I couldn't dress, like, at all. So truly, I was given the job for one reason.
1: People were talking. It wasn't always good, but people were talking.
0: I started okay at the paper. My first ever assignment as a professional reporter was to follow around an up-and-coming country singer named Darren Norwood. I spent several hours with him at the annual Fanfare Country Music Festival, standing by as he signed autographs and received accolades for his hit song, Cowboys Don't Cry. My lead on the story that appeared in the June 8th paper read, I'm speaking to Darren Norwood. He appears to be listening. There shouldn't be this much confusion. You mean you're not a fan of mine? He asks. No. Have you heard of my CD? No. Do you know who I am? No. Darren Norwood takes it all in stride. This is fanfare after all a time where the up-and-comers of country music get a chance to step into the spotlight and see what can be done with it. By the time this day is done, he says, a sheepish grin creeping up the left side of his face, you're gonna be a fan of mine, trust me. It was good, not amazing, but solid. There were quality follow-up stories, and people liked them. It was only some food and fashion and a lot of random features. A woman who makes cool vests, struggling singers on Music Row, the art of blowing the perfect bubble, I heard how talented I was, that I was a breath of fresh air, that I was exactly the type of voice the paper needed. And in hindsight, it all went to my 22-year-old head rather quickly. I wasn't even slightly hip or counterculture, but I thought of myself as hip and counterculture. I mean, I pitched a story about spending 12 straight hours surfing the web and thought that meant spending 12 straight hours in AOL chat rooms. It was only when the letter arrived, hey idiot, that's not the web, that I realized I had no idea what I was talking about. Anyhow, I was charged up, super cocky, and itching to make my mark. And really, the disaster probably began that July, when Catherine assigned me to profile a chef at a local eatery that cooked exotic meats. The place was called the Corner Market, and I spent some time driving around Nashville with Steve Scalise, the chef. And as he told me all about the stuff he'd prepared, antelope, raccoon, peacock, I asked him the sort of edgy question the 22-year-old Jeff Perlman thought he was supposed to ask. Let's say you had to, I said. Would you cook human flesh? I could really make this episode of the podcast stand out by saying that Scalise screamed at me, or punched me, or looked flabbergasted. But none of that happened. I returned to the office the following day, and Catherine said she'd received a call. Did you ask Steve Scalise if he's cooked human flesh? Uh, no. And I hadn't. I'd asked if he would cook human flesh. That was just the beginning. My day-to-day editor was Patrick Connolly, a soft-spoken 36-year-old man from Florida. Patrick was married with three young kids, and, just being honest, I think I viewed him as the enemy to all things cool and hip. Patrick never cursed. His voice sounded kind of like this. He wore glasses and used words and phrases like, neat and really cool. I'm pretty sure he'd never heard of Tupac. On a fairly regular basis, Patrick would call me in and we go at it. I would fight every word change, every suggestion. I'd whine that he was ruining my story, that it just didn't work if it were not as is. He was so calm and I fucking hated it. He oftentimes could not be coerced and I fucking hated that too.
2: I mean, you were just a real pain at times and you were like so obstinate and it was like I was thinking about it and it was like sometimes you just wanted to argue for the sake of arguing. I think you enjoyed
0: that. I started doing things that only assholes would do. I'd say to a friend, "Pick a word, any word," and I'd use it in the lead to my next story. Banana phone, dog whistle, superfly. I tried dropping multiple curses in my text. The thought being that if I wrote four fucks, two shits, a cocksucker, and an asshole, the asshole would survive. I didn't realize until much later that I was actually the asshole. Catherine had hired me to be bold, so I brought forth bold ideas. And I think, looking back, editors like Patrick felt some pressure to approve them, or at least kind of go along. That's probably how I was assigned to write a piece on condoms, a pitch I truly thought had no chance of survival. I actually remember the overture. Patrick, condoms are bigger than ever. Different colors, shapes, scents. It'll be a really cool piece. And Patrick saying, uh, I guess as long as you use good judgment. Then I wrote it. My lead featured a scene of me fucking my girlfriend. I'm not making that up. It was me and my girlfriend fucking and me reaching for a condom, but not sure which one to use. A dialogue followed, and then my girlfriend said something like, I love condoms. It was a lead that wouldn't have survived the cutting slab at any newspaper in the country, maybe world. Certainly not one in Tennessee. And when Patrick said, Jeff, we can't run this. And then Catherine said, Jeff, we can't run this. I was furious. Why were they stifling my talent? Who do they think they were? I was the boy genius, the great journalistic mind being suppressed. What did they know? I wanna stop for a moment and explain the living department of the Nashville Tennessean in 1994. So back in the waning heyday of newspapers, Nashville actually had two dailies. There was the Tennessean, which came out mornings, and the Nashville Banner, which arrived in afternoons. We shared a stately looking beige building at 1100 Broadway, the Tennessean upstairs, the banner downstairs. We were rivals and co-occupants. Every day I'd drive to the paper, park in the lot, Enter through the front door, and walked a dozen or so steps to the Tennessean. He'd pass a small desk, then cruise a long hallway toward living, where we were situated on a bunch of desks divided by lower cubicles. The staff was super quirky. We had a uniquely talented, openly gay country music writer at a time when I'm not sure everyone in Nashville was ready for that. He was great. We had a pair of arch-conservative, born-again Christian writers who, early in my time there, invited me to play volleyball with their friends. Patrick did me well on that one. And you go to, you pulled me aside and you're like, don't play volleyball with them. Like, you don't want to go play volleyball.
2: Well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I mean, you know, you didn't get what was going on. No, you were like, you were like, friend, meet, <laughs> friend, friend, you, you know, and they were evangelical, you know, uh, Christians. And, and, you know, they they had to try and turn you. Um,
0: <laughs> we had an arts writer who introduced me to the intricacy of Rapper's Delight. We had a GA writer who was going through a rough cancer battle. We had a restaurant reviewer named, awesomely, Fair Wine. And we had two people who really leap off the page. The first was a woman named Sylvia, who was probably 50 but in my head seemed 70. Sylvia was my neighbor, both cubicle wise and in my apartment complex. And I really loved her. She was zany and unpredictable and smoked about a hundred cigarettes a minute. She drove a red Miata and swore she was the world's best rider and her skin was as leathery as leathery can be. We're talking about a thrice sunburned Robert Redford falling asleep in the Fort Lauderdale beach. It was that bad. Anyhow, I loved Sylvia. And one day I received a call from her at my apartment. Jeff, she said, can you come over to my pad? I need help. Okay. I walked over. The door is wide open. And when I entered, Sylvia was completely naked in a dry bathtub. Honey, she said, I've fallen. Can you pick me up? The sight burned a hole in my brain. I'm still in therapy.
2: I remember you calling and whispering and (laughs) whispering (laughs) into the phone, (laughs) you know, (laughs) something like, You know, Patrick, I've just had a mind-boggling experience. I got a phone call, and she said she had fallen in the bathtub, and I had to come and get her out. And so I have seen (laughs) so-and-so, nude. (laughs) And you're whispering in the phone, and you're obviously
0: so stressed. The other colleague was Sheila, one of our two living department office managers, and maybe my all-time, all-time favorite human being, Sheila was probably about four foot 11, early to mid 30s, African American, short hair, southern, beautiful smile. Not a journalist, but an organizer. At the time, I was this brash New Yorker, and I'd never met anyone like Sheila. Silky Dixie accent, ooze compassion, loving wife and mother. She felt like the older sister I'd never had. And Sheila and I always talked junk. Nothing serious, but just about cooking, sports, writing, general banter to pass the time. So one day I was at the office late, the only one there, filing something. And I noticed Sheila had left her computer on. Now, back in the day, we had an inner office email system where you could send messages from one person to another and it flashed atop the screen in, I think, a light green Times font. So I sort of looked to my right, looked to my left, hopped on the Sheila's computer and typed, Hey Sheila, go fuck yourself. And I sent it from herself to herself. Then I went home and thought nothing of it. The next morning, my phone rang. It was Lori Deaton, a coworker. Hey, Jeff, you've got to come in. There's a situation at the office, and we're having a meeting. What's the problem? So, I'm not sure if you knew this, but Sheila's been having issues with a stalker. And last night, we think the person threatened her on her computer. Um, what? It's serious. She's really scared. Uh, okay. I'll, uh, I'll be right in. I got to the office and Sheila's stalker was the talk of the newsroom. There was a guy everyone suspected of harassing her from afar, and security was being called, and action would be taken, and, uh, Sheila, can I talk to you for a moment? Sure, Jeff. Deep breath. So, it, it was me. I was here last night, and your computer was on, and I swear I was just goofing around. I'm so sorry, I am so, so sorry. Sheila looked at me like one of those paintings of Mary gazing down upon baby Jesus with compassion, love, empathy, sympathy. Jeff, it's okay. I'm happy it was just you and not something serious. Can we not tell Catherine? I asked. Oh, Jeff, she said. We really have to. I knew she was right. I hated it, but I knew. So I knocked on Catherine Mayhew's door and asked if we could talk. She suggested I sit down. I figured there was a solid 40% chance I was about to be fired. Catherine, I, I said, it, it, it was me. I sent the note to Sheila. It was just a joke. I swear, that's all. It was just a joke. At that moment, I started crying. Catherine was an empathetic boss. She truly was. But there was no empathy here. And that was appropriate. Are you fucking kidding me? Jeff, are you fucking kidding me? This is inexcusable. You need to grow up. Seriously. You have to start acting like a professional. I wasn't fired. And because it was a pathetic sack of shit, I didn't learn my lesson. The National Banner had a food writer named Nikki Pendleton, who was talented and far more knowledgeable about the subject than I was. And because I bought into the newspaper rivalry and also because, duh, I was pathetic. On occasion, I would send her her office DMs insisting that a new food writer was in town and he was about to kick her ass. I don't even know how to explain this. I wish I could go back in time and smack myself in the face. Really, I wish I could go back in time and just tell young me to shut the fuck up. Instead, recently I called Nikki to reaffirm how awful I was and to apologize yet again. Nikki and I have been Facebook friends for years, and she's truly one of the best. I have always felt more guilty about just being a cocky little sort of asshole, and I didn't even know you. And I was like a shitty food writer who wasn't even a food writer. And I've always, I have always felt bad about that.
1: At the time I thought, who is this guy? You know, if you're gonna have a food editor for Nashville, you should have some at least from the South, but they were looking for some tone and you were what they had at hand
0: maybe. Shortly after this all went down, Catherine asked two veteran writers at the Tennessean, Joe Rogers and Brad Schmidt, to serve as mentors. It was a great idea. But I thought I was better than Joe and Brad, and I told them so. No thanks, I'm good, I said. The looks on their faces. Who is this asshole? Because I didn't know how to report, and because I was blinded by ambition and idiocy, I committed one error after another, after another, after another. Many of the blunders were tiny. I reviewed a Sheryl Crow concert and called one of her songs Viva Las Vegas, not Leaving Las Vegas. I misspelled former Kiss drummer Peter Chris's last name with a K. I was asked to leave a press conference after one of the company's flacks heard me muttering under my breath how stupid the whole thing was. Once, I spent a week following around the members of a local rock band named Dreaming in English. It was a lengthy piece, probably 2,000 words, that ran off the front page, and I was euphoric when it came out. On publication morning, Roger Nichols, the group's lead guitarist, called to tell me how much he loved the article. Thanks so much, I said. I'm really thrilled to hear that. Yeah, so there's just one problem, he replied. Not a big one, but our lead singer's name is Tyrone Banks, not Tyrone Brooks. I should have told my editors so that a correction could be run. But through all the mishaps, I almost never did. I was too scared of getting fired. The local All Weekly, the Nashville Scene, had a media critic named Henry Walker, and he caught on to my act. He opened one column with the line, if there's one cow pie in the field, the Tennessean's Jeff Perlman will manage to step in it, then later referred to me as the paper's enfant terrible. In another column, this one his annual awards section, Walker named me best print reporter in need of an editor. I'm sure in my blindness, I thought Walker was just being jerky, but he wasn't. His takes were dead on. Oh, I almost forgot the hate letters, the mounds and mounds of hate letters. I saved most of them and they were harsh. Tommy Jett, July 4th, 1994. My first impression was to write you and really blast you, but the Lord spoke to me and told me to pray for you instead. Beatrice Puckett, November 7th, 1994. How in the world did this smart aleck get on the staff of the Tennessean? His limited vision and shallowness are appalling. The CEO of a company called Kid Style USA, December 21st, 1994. This letter is in response to Jeff Perum's bashingly crude, irresponsible, and insensitive review of the recording Christmas Kid Style. And my personal favorite, which arrived with no name or date. Fuck you, Yankee Jew boy faggot. Yeah. My personal life was actually worse than my professional life. I was an asshole, and generally people don't befriend assholes. I spent a lot of time alone, using Friday and Saturday nights to walk through downtown Nashville, or take long runs to the Kenny Rogers Roasters and back. I drove a sad red Geo Metro convertible that started to shake once it hit 60. When I left Delaware, I had a lovely girlfriend who I dated for about two years. She dumped me via phone midway through the first quarter of Super Bowl twenty nine, and I punched a hole in my wall, then sat down to sob. This was before Match.com or j so I responded by going on a handful of dates via newspaper personals. Sitting in a restaurant, waiting for someone from a glorified want ad, longing the girlfriend who kicked me to the curb, I never felt more pathetic. Looking back... All that bluster and bravado was, I believe, compensation for a guy with low self-esteem, few friends, zero love life, and far too many weekends sitting around my apartment playing video games and jerking off to Tanya Tucker photos. Wait, was that out loud? Within the wreckage, I had my moments. Little slivers that Catherine says reminded her of why she hired me and why she stuck with me. I wrote a pretty solid profile of a chef who made great eggs. I did a story on sports biographies and, memorably, asked Jack McCallum, later my friend and Sports Illustrated colleague, whether it was he or Shaquille O'Neal who did most of the writing in their co-credited book, *Shack Attack. I was once roped into doing a story for the Sunday home section about a house named the Winfield, and I used all 700 words to compare the home to former Yankee slugger Dave Winfield. It was creative. One piece in particular stands out. In early June of 1995, Patrick asked if I'd be interested in writing a profile of Lynn and Warren Thompson, a natural couple with a tragic love story. The two were in their second decade of marriage, but Lynn, age 49, was dying of cancer and wanted to teach her husband how to care for her cherished garden before she passed. It was heavy stuff, way beyond my comfort zone. And when I drove out to the house and sat with Lynn and asked her to describe what it was to be nearing the end of life, well, something sort of clicked. The story wasn't about me. It wasn't about my amazing talent, my God-given writing gifts. It was about two people, one who was about to die. This is Warren Thompson.
3: I remember you being nervous, but I also remember you being, you had a plan. And I said to you, "I I want this to be about Lynn and her garden. And you really insisted that it be about the two of us. Uh, you had an intuition that that was what the story should be about. Lynn was not someone who liked attention, but after the story appeared, and it was actually on Father's Day in 1995, our mailbox was overflowing with messages from total strangers, and Lynn loved it. It was such a gift.
0: The story... Beneath the headline, Lynn's Garden, ran on June 19, 1995. This is how it began. Warren Thompson is trying. He's most certainly trying. On the right side are the Shasta daisies. They're the ones with the pointed flowers. The little blue ones are bachelor buttons. Good, Warren, good. The big, bright orange flowers are the easiest of them all, coreopsis. Warren remembers those the best. They're all over the place. It's a real effort for Warren. On the bright side, His desire to acquire a green thumb assures that the garden at 1800 Woodmont Boulevard will go on for years to come. That's a promise. The downside, however, is as down as it gets. Lynn Thompson, Warren's wife of 23 years and caretaker of the garden, is dying of cancer. How meaningful was that story to me? In 2002, my dad mentioned it in his best man's toast at my wedding.
3: And there's one story that he wrote that always stood out in my mind. And it was called Leighton's Garden, and it was about a woman who was dying, and she and her husband planted a garden to serve as a memorial to her. And Jeff was maybe 21, 22 years old when he wrote this article, and the amount of sensitivity and understanding empathy that he exhibited would be unusual for anyone of any age.
0: Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor.
3: Hi, this is Emmett Perlman, Jeff's son, and you're listening to a special self-loathing autobiographical episode of Two Writers Singing Yang, sponsored by Three Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. And in case you're wondering, yes, my father was an immature little punk ass who should have been fired about 40 different times. So if you find yourself wondering how he survived, you're not alone. It's a mystery. Thank you.
0: Even with stories like Lynn's Garden, I was a mess. And then, things actually got worse. On February 27, 1995, I was sent to the Hard Rock Cafe to cover a press conference announcing the upcoming summer lineup for the Starwood Amphitheater, at the time Nashville's major concert venue. So I went, and I stood, and I listened to Kathy Armistead, the facility's marketing supervisor, run off a fairly lame roster of upcoming artists. The next day, my piece ran beneath the headline, R.A.M. Lives Up Same Old Lineup. This was my lead. When the people over at the Starwood Amphitheater held a press conference yesterday at the Hard Rock Cafe to announce this year's concert venue, everything was more or less the same as usual. They were the same old badly-dressed national journalists grubbing the same old free food. They were the same organizers, amphitheater executive director Steve Hauser and marketing supervisor Kathy Armistead. Heck, even several of the acts on the list, Jimmy Buffett, Reba McIntyre, Leonard Skynyrd, Tom Petty, Brooks and Dunn, Vince Gill, Amy Grant, Mary Chapin Carpenter and Hank Williams Jr. have performed here before. I thought nothing of it. Literally nothing. As a feature writer, you're allowed to play more narrator than a news person. So the lineup pretty much sucked, and I suggested that. On the front page of the paper, in one of those teaser boxes, a headline writer called the Starwood offerings quote-unquote lame. You couldn't argue. Or maybe you could. The day the story ran... Kathy Armistead fired off a heated letter to Frank Sutherland, the Tennessean's editor-in-chief, insisting that the paper had quote-unquote backstabbed Starward for refusing to give us the exclusive story on the upcoming lineup. Armistead reminded Frank that the Tennessean and Starward have a quote, media partnership. She wrote, We would like to point out that part of our contribution to the media partnership is a placement of permanent signage, video screen advertising, and a kiosk on site for the promotional use of the Tennessean. I feel very hesitant about having signage on site and a major association with a newspaper that feels that we are not only stale news, but after us with a vengeance. Then, the motherfucking kicker to Kathy Armstead's letter. We expect no special favors from the Tennesseans, He wrote, but neither do I expect to have my 10th anniversary misrepresented or critiqued by a junior journalist. Ouch. Of course, the newspaper would have my back. I mean, that's what editors do, Right. They support their writers Especially since in this case I did nothing wrong I covered the event The lineup was largely the same as 1994 I wrote that An editor edited the story A copy editor copied the story There were no factual mistakes So I was good, right? No Frank Sutherland was a big man Mid-40s, hefty, white beard Intimidated the hell out of me So when he called me into his office I wasn't expecting a big hug And I didn't get one What in God's name were you thinking? He reamed me out, then ripped my left Tesco off by having one of our other writers do a piece on how awesome the Starwood lineup looked, and my right Tesco off by running a box advising readers to get tickets as soon as possible. Then, the worst blow. I was summoned to Catherine's office. She sat me down and, well, this is how Henry Walker wrote about it in the Nashville scene. It seems everyone is now happy except young Pearlman, a promising writer in the making Who has reportedly been temporarily reassigned To the late night police beat Yep I was in fact reassigned to the late night police beat I knew I was being punished For something I shouldn't have been punished for And I was livid Whining, complaining, griping I started sending out applications to different papers Thinking the New York Times or the Washington Post Would certainly see the genius that was Jeff Perlman But the thing is Deep down, I'm guessing I knew the truth Yeah, the Star Starwood thing was bullshit But so was I. I didn't know the first thing about reporting. My go-to move was a snazzy lead and a quick transition. I thought I could write around holes. For example, were I too lazy to ask someone how old she was, I'd describe the wrinkles running across her forehead, her pewter-colored hair, and people would say, wow, Jeff, what beautiful descriptive writing. The thing is, there are hundreds of thousands of writers just like me. I didn't know it, maybe, but there were. You know, young, cocky, told far too often how talented they were. Blah, blah, blah. But again, I didn't have any reporting chops. I was nothing. So Catherine said something to me that I've never forgotten. Jeff, stop worrying about being so creative. Just go do cops for a month or two and get it right. Who, what, where, when, how, why. That's what's important. I was handed a police scanner, told to sit at a desk from 3 p.m. to midnight. Once per day, I'd drive down to the station and see if any famous country singers had been arrested. One time, a crooner with a wife and two kids was nabbed receiving anal sex in a park. That was interesting. Mostly, I would respond to calls that leapt from the scanner, get in my car, and drive to the scene. April 6. It was hard to figure whether the 2 ponytailed girls knew what was happening or not. Men would drive up. They'd try and buy drugs. They'd be cuffed and read their rights. The two girls with big brown eyes said nothing, just leaned against the wall and watched. There was a scene yesterday at the corner of Shepherd and Thomas Streets in South Nashville where police ran an undercover sting that resulted in 22 arrests on charges of attempting to solicit a sale of crack. April 15th, she said she was kidnapped, raped, and stuffed in a car trunk. Then she said it was all a lie. A woman who originally claimed to be the victim of foul play told police last night that she concocted the story to cover up a cocaine habit. It was crazy stuff. A dark underbelly to a city that liked to present itself as Garth Brooks and Vince Gill and a new pair of cowboy boots. And, amazingly, I fucking loved it. The grime agreed with me. The collecting of facts was shockingly satisfying. I like talking to cops, talking to perps, showing up in a courthouse at 11 p.m. Was I suddenly fixed? No, not even close. That police scanner? The one that cost the newspaper $2,000? I lost it. I still have no idea where it is. Then there's a the case of Paul Hildreth, a 37-year-old Oak Ridge, Tennessee resident who was wanted on an assault warrant. On May 3rd, 1995, police arrived at his house and Hildreth pulled out a loaded 22 caliber pistol and pointed at officers Greg Lee and Dwayne Brooks. The policeman shot and killed Hildreth, all information that came across the scanner. So I drove to Oak Ridge a few hours later to talk with neighbors and no one was around. Hildreth, dead. Cops, gone. There was yellow caution tape across the door at 601 Jackson Downs Boulevard. And when I turned the knob, the door was opened. Hmm. My editor was a man named Dwight Lewis, veteran newspaper guy. Smart. I called the office on the football sized portaphone I was provided with, and I asked for Dwight. He's not here right now. Can I take a message? Uh, yeah, this is Jeff Perlman. So I'm at the Hildreth scene, and the door's unlocked. Can you ask Dwight if it's okay for me to look around inside? Okay. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. I waited and waited. I was all alone, waiting, waiting, waiting. Finally, fuck it. I walked back to the door, turned the knob, leaned in. There were bullet holes in the wall. The blue couch was soaked in blood. A diploma hung from a nail. There was... Hello? Jeff, it's Dwight. Whatever you do, and I mean whatever you do, do not open the door. We cannot interfere with the crime scene. You got it? Uh, the tongue-lashing I received was intense and warranted. Ultimately, the police beat was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was a master's class in detail and accountability. It showed me I could write with some flair and also get stuff right. Minus the star power that, at least in my mind, came with bylines atop the living section. I was just a grunt who needed grunt experiences. One of my final assignments as a police writer explains it best. The Nashville Police Department called. They wanted to know if I'd be interested in riding along on a prostitution sting. Now, to young journalists out there, when a local police department calls to ask if you might want to attend a prostitution sting, the answer is yes. Always yes. I was sent to the Key Motel, a dump with hourly rates in a seedy part of town. The first, uh, 40 minutes were spent inside a surveillance vehicle parked across the street. We'd watch on a monitor as an undercover female officer, disguised as a hooker, lured men into the room. There, police waited to arrest the man. After a while, I was asked whether I'd want to go into the room and experience from the perspective of the arresting officers. Now, to young journalists out there, when a local police department asks if you might want to participate in a prostitution sting, the answer is yes, always yes. I entered the room. There were a bunch of cops. We were all in the bathroom. The lights were off. Quiet, quiet, quiet. Then the front door opened. Come on, baby. Come on in. Don't be afraid. <laughs> Boom. We jumped out. The man was cuffed and placed on the bed. I'll never forget the look on his face. Pure shock. His wallet fell to the comforter. There was a photo of his wife and kids. His name was Richard Harrington, a 34-year-old fast food manager. He had offered $40 for oral sex. It was sad and exciting, pathetic and heart-pounding. I returned to the office to write my story. I wanted it to be sizzling, to capture the moment. I also wanted it to be newsy, straight. This was something I always battled with. Angel on one shoulder, devil on the other. I wrote my piece. My editor for the day was a man named Ted Power. I sent him the copy to be read. As I watched from a few deaths away, his head fell into his hands. Jeff, he said... We're in the Bible Belt. No good, I asked. He just sighed. My lead read, all Richard Harrington wanted was a blowjob. This is Ted, who I hadn't spoken to in more than 20 years.
3: I think my first reaction was just to break out laughing. And from there, I had to explain why we weren't going to do that, even though somewhere deep inside of me (laughs) was, oh, what the hell, let's go with this.
0: You know, so acknowledging that I was a complete train wreck, the one thing I will say about that lead, looking now as you know, a guy in my 40s, like I don't mind the idea of a writer kind of going for it
3: and trying it. Is that stupid? Jeff, I think you sort of opened the eyes, I think, to a lot of people in Nashville, in that here was this young kid who was gonna say, I'm gonna take chances and I'm not gonna be afraid to take chances. And I think in many respects and in many newsrooms, uh, that were run, and, you know, I wasn't that stodgy back then, no. but but the culture was conservative. Play it conservative. Don't be scary. And we needed the Jeff Perlmans to say to us, look, there's a new age coming uh, that wants to take chances, that knows its uh, audience can be sophisticated, and we were trying to find the boundary, and you helped us find the boundary, I think, and you pushed us to be uh, more and more mold. Wow, I'm I'm just amazed that someone used the word sophisticated.
0: A few weeks later, after my news span had concluded, I was finally, mercifully, sent to the sports department, where I was given the highly coveted high school wrestling beat. My reporting improved and my wake-up call finally received. A year later, I was hired by Sports Illustrated, based back home in New York. My two and a half year odyssey in Nashville was coming to an end. On the day I walked out of the Tennessean offices for the final time, I was crying. I had given Frank Sutherland a letter of resignation that, while true to form in its youthful self-indulgence, also spoke some wisdom. I wrote, When I was initially hired as a food writer, I arrived as a cocky, arrogant college kid with a chip on his shoulder and all the answers in his head. I knew everything. I was always right. Editors were only out to get me, and co-workers were rivals. Then reality slapped me in the head. Error after error. The cockiness was gone, replaced by a real fear of being canned. Through that period, however, there was also support. Patrick Connolly and Catherine Mayhew, the two who could seal my fate, helped me find my way. I look back with a real fondness for the Tennessean. I recently was able to ask Catherine for the first time why she didn't fire me. I'm not gonna exaggerate it, the answer really touched me.
1: I would take all the grief that you caused me 100% over again to work with somebody who has your kind of talent because what you ended up getting, not just at the Tennessean, but I'm sure every other place you worked, you know, you develop that sense of, I have to get my facts straight. I have to do research. I have to, you know, you spend months on your books now, you know, and every little thing, every little thing is researched. You can, you know, go back and footnote it if you needed to, And that's what you didn't have those first couple of years. The sort of tenet of basic journalism is who, what, where, when, why. You had none of that.
0: 25 years later, sitting here at age 47 with a wife, two kids, a career that's exceeded all of my expectations in terms of enjoyment and fulfillment, I recall my time in Nashville with equal doses of embarrassment and gratitude. Embarrassment because I was an arrogant little asshole. Gratitude because I learned not to be one. I want to thank today's guests, Catherine Mayhew, Patrick Connolly, Nikki Pendleton-Wood, Warren Thompson, and Ted Power for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. The music is by the Dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.